0: the goal here is to understand what is the sentiment of the workforce. Don't assume you know what it is. And frankly, you know, for many executives, they do assume they know what the culture is before they set out to change the culture. And they often get it wrong. I will say to companies, if the executive team locks themselves in a conference room to decide what the culture is, guaranteed they're going to get it wrong.
1: The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology metrics or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes welcome to the love and action podcast the show where we explore how to make businesses and workplaces thrive through acts of love and care from human to human leader to employee we believe when people are engaged growing and they have a purpose it's a place where they feel loved this is the whole reason we do this show glad you could join us and we would love it if you could share this episode with a friend and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. My guest today is Kevin Oakes, author of the brand new book, Culture Renovation, 18 Leadership Actions to Build an Unshakable Company. This book has been praised by many luminaries. In fact, Dr. Brene Brown calls it the best playbook she has ever seen when it comes to building great organizational cultures that rehumanize work. Kevin is also CEO and co-founder of I4CP, the leading HR research firm that discovers the people practices of high-performance organizations. He's been a pioneer in the human capital field for the last 25 years and is an international keynote speaker on culture, talent management, leadership, among other topics. And now he joins us on the show. Kevin, welcome to the Love and Action podcast. Thanks, Marcel. Really uh, glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Absolutely. And I'm excited about this conversation. So we always start with a gratitude moment. It's standard on the show. It's tradition. And that is what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days?
0: (laughs) Well, there's a lot that makes me smile. I, I do feel like it's a dawn of a new day here with a new administration in place and almost like a delayed new year. But I think probably what's making me smile more than anything right now, Marcel, is as you know, as you just talked about, I have a new book out. And I'm hearing from so many old friends, colleagues, people I worked with, who are reaching out. And it's just fun to get all those different messages from people. As a result, you know, some of them are very heartfelt. You know, I had one guy say, geez, I I didn't realize you're going to mention me in the book. And I'm just so grateful you mentioned me in the book. And and then my dad uh, really tugged at my heartstrings. I dedicated the book to him, but I didn't tell him that I did it. And so he didn't know until he re- read the book. And he said it kind of brought him to tears. So that was, uh, that's something
1: that makes me oh. continue to smile every morning. That is awesome. It's sort of the, the gift that keeps on giving. That's great. So I want to let our listeners get acquainted with you a bit. I read the copy of your bio, but I want to hear it in your own words, Kevin. You know, without the the fancy copywriting, I mean, what would you say is your purpose, your why? Our purpose as a company is to discover the people
0: practices of high-performing organizations. And so we're we're an HR research organization. We do more HR research than probably anybody on the planet, always looking at what are organizations doing with their people that has an impact to the bottom line. And so we, we're constantly comparing and contrasting high-performing organizations to low-performing organizations. And as part of that, we run a very large network of um, HR executives and business executives. And we call it a closed network because we don't allow any vendors or consultants or, or the press, for that matter, into that network. So it's a real safe haven for those executives across you know hundreds of companies to share information, share tools, share strategies. It's been growing very rapidly, but it's just been very rewarding, particularly in the pandemic, to see how these organizations have really helped each other through a time frame when nobody prepared for this, nobody's you know, ever experienced this before.
1: Yeah, yeah. So let's dig into the book. You know, I'm going to start off with this research that you cite that says only 15% of organizations succeed in improving company culture. What are the other 85% doing wrong, Kevin? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty startling
0: statistic, but that's a stat that you know, my team has uncovered. I've seen a lot of other research studies come up with a very similar statistic. And the harsh reality is that companies that typically set out to change their culture, they, they fail. And a big reason is because culture is a hard thing to change. It's not easy to uh, you know, have significant impact with organizational culture. And, you know, over a year ago, when my research team set out to study this phenomena, our real goal was to figure out what are those 15% doing right? And is there a commonality? Is there a blueprint amongst those companies that others could follow? And and sure enough, through the research and through the case studies, we did find a common blueprint, which was the reason for the book. And, you know, I think as we looked at those successful companies, it was very clear that while it's a hard initiative to try to change culture. If you follow certain steps and you're very planful in your approach ahead of time, if you follow certain steps when you build that new culture and then focus on maintaining it afterwards, which is a step that often gets ignored, then you can achieve, you know, good culture change. And some of the uh, companies we profile in the book, I, I just love talking about Microsoft is certainly one. I think okay. the, you know, You know, the culture change that Satya Nadell has engineered there has been remarkable. But we talk about many other companies such as T-Mobile and 3M and Patagonia and WL Gore. There's a whole bunch of companies that we really profile
1: around how they've been successful with culture change. Right, right. But I still want to get what are they doing wrong? So you talk about signs, right? What are some signs that will clue us in to what organizations are doing wrong? which then would necessitate the need for culture renovation. What are some examples of that?
0: You know, the number one thing they do wrong is they don't get the organization to cooperate and create a co-creation mentality around this, around culture change overall. So while oftentimes organizations can put a lot of words in a PowerPoint, those words aren't followed and the, the workforce doesn't really believe them, doesn't buy into it. I think if you Look at some of the successful companies, they have done a great job at enlisting the help of the right people inside the organization, but also propagating messages and communication that everybody can rally around really, a purpose and a value and value statements that resonate with the workforce and are true to who that company is. Now, we call this culture renovation, even though culture transformation is the term that's more commonly used when people talk about culture change. But as we got into the research, we recognize that the successful companies, they don't try to completely remake who they are. Instead, they, they build off of you know, all the great things that, they, that made them great to begin with, and they keep their purpose, they keep their values, and so I think those are all important tenets to the concept of renovation overall.
1: Mm, okay. We'll get into the values in a bit because I'm, I'm really curious about how to instill the right values to build a, a company culture. But let's talk about the pandemic and how has the pandemic messed up this whole idea of culture renovation or even trying to, you know, find your, quote, true north as a company of culture. I mean, how has it exacerbated any of those problems that we see in culture?
0: We've explored this in great depth. And I say to a lot of companies that there's no escaping the reality that your culture has changed during the pandemic and that change wasn't necessarily proactive by you it was change that occurred to the organization because of the pandemic and so many companies are recognizing we need to be a little bit more proactive about the culture that we want going forward as we you know start to emerge from the pandemic there's been some clear negative hits to culture as a lot of workforces have gone remote they might not have been prepared for that they maybe were too used to uh, you know the The aspects of an in-person culture and had not embraced any remote work in the past. They also might have had a company that was really fearful of change and reluctant to change. And that's come out loud and clear during the pandemic. If your company was one that really resisted change, then you probably had a hard time during it. But if you're a company that embraced change, and a lot of high-performing companies do, you were able to sort of roll with the punches and operate efficiently. Now, you know, probably the, the one thing that I have a tough time replicating is the serendipitous moments that create innovation and creativity from an in person culture. That's a, that's a tough time. That's a hard thing to schedule over Zoom, you know, try to schedule innovation over Zoom. But there have been a number of positive things that employees have shared. And, and when we ask companies, Has your culture been impacted during the pandemic? Most of them will say yes. And when we ask, has it been impacted positively or negatively, most will say positively. And the reason they say positively is because they've seen a lot more empathy from management, from the executive team towards the employee base, a lot more flexibility also in policies and procedures, you know, just given everybody's unique situations, a lot more attention to well-being both physical and mental and emotional well-being. But they also have seen the whole person much more so during the pandemic, both from senior executives down to their, the colleagues that they know well. A lot of times in, a, in an in-person environment, we only see the business persona. We don't get the whole picture of somebody. And, and now when we're jettisoned into people's living rooms and kitchens and we see their Kids and their pets, and we understand if they have elder care responsibilities, we suddenly have a much better appreciation for the complete person that we're working with. And so I think that's been a very positive aspect of, of the pandemic.
1: Yeah, I'm glad, so glad that you mentioned uh, some of the positive things that employees are, are saying in your research uh, that points back to empathy because in empathy, you are able to recognize the mental health aspect of the workplace, which I think pre-pandemic, it wasn't even on most CEOs' radars. I don't know. Am I right? Yeah, you're completely right. In fact,
0: it was almost taboo to you know bring up that conversation with employees, where, where today, I think most appreciate that conversation. They want to know that as a leader, you care as a leader, you're open to talking about the mental and emotional aspect of day-to-day life, of day-to-day work. And while a lot of companies had programs to address that, like EAP programs and others, they often went unused inside the organization. And today, every organization I talk to is doubling down on providing assistance. They not only are making sure that there's a lot of communication around the programs that they already had existing, but they're rolling out new ways to help organizations with the emotional mental stress that the pandemic has brought on. I think probably the best thing that can happen, though, is to show that you're open as as a leader, as a manager of people to having those conversations. And some of that is even being willing to talk about it, you know, your own personal situation so that you can make it safe, psychologically safe for the
1: workforce to talk about it. Kevin, you talk about this common problem that you found, and you mentioned it in the book. It's called collaboration overload. Unpack that for us.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's funny when I ask people, do you suffer from collaborative overload? Almost everybody says yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's a, it's, a, it's a real issue in a lot of organizations. If you think about any organization you've worked in, Marcel, uh, in, you know, and, and I ask this of uh, lots of people inside their own companies. Think about who does all the workflow kind of flow through and who is in the center of the beehive where everybody seems to go to that individual for opinions, for information, for answers. Inevitably, somebody's face will pop into your head and and you can probably think of several people like that in the workforce. And that's reality. If you look at any company, there are these go-to people, these internal rock stars that all things seem to flow through. It's not always easy to know who those people are, however, especially the higher up you are in the organization. Sometimes those people are buried in the hierarchy. They're lower level you know, in, in the hierarchy. Uh, a lot of times they're introverts, not necessarily extroverts, but they are the source of opinion and information. And while those people are usually invaluable to a company, Today, more than ever, they also are possibly suffering from collaborative overload. You know, the old adage, if you want something done, give it to a busy person really applies here. And we have so many ways to reach each other, right? We we can reach each other through email, text, Slack, Teams, you know, you have it, social channels. If I, I counted up one day, there's probably eight different ways people can reach me, no problem, inside my own organization. That contributes to the overload because the the hierarchy has been flattened a bit and sort of anybody can, you know, reach anybody inside of an organization. Uh, And you want to make sure that you make it safe for people who could potentially be suffering from collaborative overload to raise their hand and say that to their leaders, hey, I'm just buried and, uh, you know, and I'm going to break pretty soon. And that's that is what happens. People get burnt out. And when you lose those rock stars internally, you know, it can really productivity overall inside the company. Also, you want to make it safe for them to pass along some of those requests. You know, a lot of times they are very quick to say yes to every request that comes in, but you want to help them understand it's okay to pass along some of these things that others can easily do just as well as you. That's the tenets of collaborative overload. And, uh, you know, I think from a leadership perspective or organization perspective, it's kind of important to just figure out where might that be happening so that you can explore, you know, do we need to help these individuals or not?
1: Okay. So what I'm hearing is that first the leaders have to acknowledge, have to make it safe enough for the employee to say, hey, boss, I'm, <laughs> I'm on overload here. Okay. So, right. uh, you know, but also from a tech standpoint, I mean, how do we overcome this issue when, like you said, you, as an example, have eight different ways people can get a hold of you.
0: Yeah. And right now, I don't think there's a great way to overcome the tech issue. There there are things that as an individual, you can do to try to alleviate that, such as only check email, you know, twice a day, you know, midday and at the end of the day, or some people are just waiting till the end of the day, turn off certain channels, you know, inside the organization. But I would also have a call out to organizations, I think, just for the sake of employees' psyche, you need to sort of settle on communication channels that you're going to use internally. Don't let it run amok. And I see this happen all the time. Engineers like using Slack. Sales and, uh, and marketing like using Salesforce you know, for communication. A lot of other people like using Teams you know, to, to communicate. And everybody has to be on everything because you never know who's going to want to you know, communicate with you. My advice would be try to settle on some you know, common platforms from a tech perspective but also have some rules around what's appropriate. Even in my own little company, things like birthday announcements and anniversaries, those go on a Teams channel, right? So it doesn't clog up your email. And so we've had different, you know, sort of general rules that we've that we put out to people to try to hone in on the just the volume of communication that people are receiving.
1: Yeah, yeah. Kevin, I want to transition to talking about the components of a good culture in any of those cultures, you, you know, to be effective, you have to have the right values and the right behaviors in place to best support where the bus is headed, right? To support the company purpose, the mission, et cetera. So I want to uncover how leaders can determine what those behaviors should be, but then they also have to know how to reinforce those behaviors. So before we tackle that, We're going to take a quick break and Kevin and I will be right back. Hey, leaders and managers, Marcel here. You probably already know this if you've been following the show. The question comes up often. What's the purpose of this show? What's the why behind love and action? Well, the simple answer, we need to eliminate suffering in the workplace and help leaders to flourish. Because when we have good leaders in place, the people under their care also flourish. That is really good for business. And by the way, as an extension of the podcast, I launched a leadership development course. It's got a catchy name. Check it out on my website. It's called From Boss to Leader. And in this course, I teach the skills that you often hear on the show. Things like, how to communicate more effectively, how to engage your employees to put out their best effort, and how to build a high-performing organization. So check it out, I'm taking calls right now, and I'd love to personally chat with you to see if this course may be a good fit. Reach me on my website, marcelschwantes.com, and click on Virtual Training. Okay, we're back. So, let's talk about having the right behaviors in place to support your company's mission and purpose. I mean, how can leaders know what they are and then how do you reinforce them?
0: Well, I think every company has to settle on what are the behaviors you want from leaders. And that's one of the the steps in the book is really understanding the behaviors that you need and then making sure that the leaders are following them. One of the worst things that can happen is, you know, you set out behaviors inside the organization that you think are important, and then none of the leaders actually follow them. And the workforce is going to do what leaders do, right? They're just going to follow, you know, what they do in actuality, not what's written down on paper. Now, we start out the book with just some core healthy traits of of cultures overall to show what high-performing and and top cultures will say they have inside their organization versus low-performing organizations or companies with poor cultures. And it's things like being obsessed with delivering value to your customers, actively supporting diversity and inclusion, supporting learning and development of of all your employees, being transparent, you know, as a workforce, being collaborative as a workforce. There are several things that I think it would be hard to argue that if your organization displayed those, you wouldn't be a healthier culture. That's a starting point for organizations. But then companies need to really understand who they are, who they want to be, and then what behaviors are going to support that future vision for the organization.
1: Yeah. And so how how do you support it? So so that those things are coming off the wall in fancy plaques and being lived and breathed daily, hourly, so that you know everybody's moving in the same direction.
0: Yeah. One one of the companies I profile in the book is a company called F5 Networks. They're uh networking company is the easiest way to describe them, and had, had a great conversation with their CEO, Francois, and then Anna White, who's the head of HR. They form a dynamic duo in that company and have done a really nice job at changing the culture overall. And they really focused on leadership behaviors. They set out five leadership behaviors that they wanted to make sure were core to who they are as an organization. They put those on the wall, so you walk into their offices, Pre-pandemic, anyway, and uh, it's right behind the you know the receptionist desk. And then what Francois does with his team on a, on an everyday basis is reinforces those behaviors with his team. He insists they reinforce it with their teams, and then you've got this cascading effect down, right? That you know leaders are reinforcing it. He walks the talk. He also you know again pre-pandemic when they were all in the office, he's he's known to talk to leaders several level, levels down throughout the organization, and talk about those behaviors and recognize them when they're exemplifying those behaviors. It's a process. you know. Certainly, training is a big part of this. We found in our research that most of the successful culture change inif- initiatives, they made sure that they trained every type of leader inside the organization on those behaviors, from senior down to frontline supervisor. That's a big aspect of it as well.
1: Does it have to be following the company company values and and you know organizational key statements and behaviors, or can managers set their own set of behaviors for their own teams to you know operate by?
0: <laughs> no, it really should follow the company purpose, the company values uh, overall. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't expand on them, but as long as it's aligned with the values that you have as a company, then it's fine. That's where you get into trouble, where you let managers do whatever they want to do. You know, and I talk in the book about the problem of tolerating disruptive employees. There was a great book I I referenced in my book from Bob Sutton out of Stanford called The No A-Hole Rule. This is a G-rated show here, so I'm not saying (laughs) the actual thing. But it's the whole concept of tolerating disruptive people because they produce you know, either they're a top salesperson or they're a top engineer or whatever, you know, whatever their profession is. We see it all the time where companies acquiesce because of the results. And that's the ends justifies the means. And today, more and more companies recognize that the means is so critical. You've got to make sure that how people get to the results they get to is in line with your values, in line with your purpose. And I've seen this, Marcel, so many times where. I'll have an employee who I call it the sun only shines up because, uh, you know, what I get as the leader sometimes from a particular individual is all sunshine and, and roses. But what the employees below that individual get is just an absolute hurricane, right? And that's, that's what you have to really understand and, and figure out if it's happening uh, inside the organization, because that can be so detrimental to the culture overall. So making sure that you know, everybody is walking the talk is critically important to sustaining culture change over time.
1: Yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay. I want to talk about since March of last year with with COVID, change and disruption has been constant. So I want to ask you to speak to the CEO. What advice do you have for communicating change for employees, for the whole workforce during times of uncertainty?
0: Well, CEOs, unfortunately, over the past year, have had several moments in time where they really should have been stepping up and addressing the workforce. You know, whether it was the George Floyd murder, whether you know it was related to the pandemic, or even you know the the Capitol uh, breach, you know, the Capitol riots that we that we saw uh, towards the end of Trump's reign here. All of those are times when leadership needs to speak up, and I. Told, um, I told several companies right after the Capitol riots, you need to acknowledge that internally. Your workforce is going to reflect what you see out in America, a really divided you know, political environment and a you know, lot of emotions, and reinforce your purpose, reinforce your values, and reinforce the concept that it's okay to have different opinions as long as we treat each other with respect. And the notion that a team doesn't win if it's divided, a team wins when it's united. And while you can have diversity of, you know, in lots of respects on that team, as long as everybody respects and appreciates that diversity to give you, you know, the right creativity, innovation, you need to be competitive and successful, all the better. So those are some of the core messages that I think leaders have had to say, you know, throughout this past year. But it's uh you know if you're setting out to make true change to your culture, you know there's a number of different things you should do before you initiate that change, and that's what I document in the book and the whole plan phase of you know some things that you need to you know just sit back, make sure you understand before you get out there and try to make change happen.
1: yeah, yeah, so you've already mentioned Microsoft and a couple other companies. I want to get into uh, maybe a, a story that really sticks out for you about a company that excelled at renovating their culture. Is there a good one you can share? There's so many, Marcel. I'll talk about
0: one that I think will go down in history as being one of the biggest turnarounds, best turnarounds we've ever seen is T-Mobile. And it wasn't that long ago, just maybe six, seven years ago, T-Mobile was the dregs of the, of the wireless universe. They were the worst wireless company, losing customers left and right to AT&T and Verizon and even Sprint you know, it just was a dismal failure. And they brought in John Ledger to be CEO. And John did some very core things that map nicely to the, to the blueprint that we put out in the book. First thing he did was just listened. He listened to the customers. He listened to the workforce. And, you know, just tried to understand what were some of their concerns, you know, about the, about the company. And then he recognized that if they were going to be different, uh, they needed to do almost everything a little bit different, you know, holding on to some of the core tenants that they had as values of the company, but questioning certain things like contracts and that mobile companies at the time were making everybody sign these long contracts. They got rid of the contracts. They made international roaming, you know, not as a, you know, such an expensive thing for most, for most individuals and they adopted this this mantra of being the uncarrier and internally they adopted it as an employee base of, try, of trying to question why do we do certain things the way we do them along the way what ledger did which i really liked is he he rallied the workforce around these core themes which is something you see in a lot of the case studies that i put in the book but he also changed his own persona <laughs> He used to be, uh, you know, kind of a clean cut, you know, short haired, glasses, suit and tie kind of guy before he arrived at T Mobile and right when he arrived there. Very quickly, his hair was down to his shoulders. He only wore t shirts and leather, always the T Mobile logo in uh, the colors, which is magenta. He wore magenta sneakers and t shirts. And, and he's a very colorful character to begin with, but he kind of turned himself into a rebel, which is the persona that they wanted to you know get externally being the uncarrier. And so today, you know, they they've merged with Sprint. Today they're the darling of the cellular industry. They've they're taking away, you know, customers from Verizon and AT&T and uh, have become, you know, a formidable player in the wireless industry. And I think it's just a great story of uniting purpose with the external brand and, you know, with the the values of the
1: organization all into one package to make a huge difference. What I love about that story is that you mentioned a couple of things is building up your self-awareness to understand what's going on around you, which then leads to the kind of intuitive listening skills that you never activated before in your life as a leader. One of the things that I I teach in my my online course is the, the two things really I just mentioned self-awareness and listening. Listening is such a rare art form these days at the leadership level, but when you can actually pause and actually listen actively, then you begin to solve problems because then you can activate your curiosity too to start asking questions. Okay, why is it that this isn't working? And then listen to all sides, all perspectives, and you're going to find some things that you never knew before. But again, to me, raising your self-awareness and Activating that emotional intelligence is really the, the key starting point for that cycle to happen.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, just to build on that, Marcel, I, I feel like true listening is really a lost art these days. I, I've always been a um, fan of the, the phrase that Stephen Covey kind of coined a long time ago, seek first to understand, then be understood. And it's really the whole concept of listening to truly understand somebody, not to reply and i think too many times today individuals and we see this propagated throughout organizations we're listening merely to reply not to truly understand and that's the very first step honestly in in the whole 18 action steps is develop and deploy a comprehensive listening strategy the goal here is to understand what is the sentiment of the workforce don't assume you know what it is and frankly you know for many executives they do assume they know what the culture is before they set out to change the culture, and they often get it wrong. I will say to companies, if the executive team locks themselves in a conference room to decide what the culture is, guaranteed they're going to get it wrong. And through really going out to the workforce and understanding the sentiment, not just through the annual engagement survey, because that's a point-in-time exercise, and that's going to be a false proxy for what's happening in the culture. It's really using frequent surveys. There are some companies I profile in the book that do this daily. They'll ask a daily question. Others are using technology. They're using natural language processing to allow employees to write whatever they want in their own words, and then using artificial intelligence to categorize and synthesize all those words to create themes. It's you know, far beyond a word cloud, if you will, and to really understand you know, what are the major themes going on inside the organization. And even taking that concept externally, you know, there's a lot being said about your organization out on Glassdoor or Indeed, and, you know, candidates are reading that. And that's also a clue as to what the employee sentiment is to gather that kind of data. All of that informs your listening strategy and informs you around some of the issues you need to tackle when it comes to culture renovation.
1: Yeah, those are really, really keen insights. I appreciate that. Kevin? I want to make the link between leadership and practical love and care. It's tradition on this show. Love, in this case, being a verb, an action verb, not a squishy feeling that creates value and engages the hearts and minds of people and and all leads to high performance. So point blank question. Here we go. How does a leader love well day in and day out? You know, I think first and
0: foremost, leaders have to love what they do. Uh, they have to love their company. They have to love the industry that they're in. I actually say this all the time to people in my company that are hiring individuals. I tell them the first thing I want to see is passion for our industry, passion for what we do. If we're just another company, if we're just a paycheck to that person, they're not going to have, you know, the engagement, the discretionary effort. You know, sort of the intellectual curiosity that we want from those employees. They're, you know, th- this is going to be just a job to them, and so it's the same for leaders. They have to have that same passion, that that same intellectual curiosity. It's nothing I love more than you know having employees in the company constantly sending out articles, you know, to me or others, and saying, "Hey, did you see this? You know, oh, this is great." You know, you want that that real passion for the industry. You know, when it comes to love, you know, leaders have to love their people, and that's sort of the easy aspect of this question. Is you really need to have a team that you care about and want to see succeed. We talk about this in the book under the um, category of talent mobility. Is one area where we talk about this. The best leaders are the ones that are developing people and promoting and moving people. Talent mobility, which means internal movement and promotions inside the organization is one that's always a hallmark of top companies, but there's still a small percentage of companies that really put a lot of effort into this and measure it. And you see this all the time, Marcel, when a leader has a team that is really performing well or even an individual performing well year over year for them, they wanna hang on to that person or those people because that's what's making you successful as a leader. Ultimately, that's a little bit detrimental to those people and to the organization. Because if you've got great talent underneath you, you want to move that talent around so that they develop as individuals and the organization benefits from the, you know, the information, the, you know, the expertise and capabilities that they have. And you also improve collaboration and communication that way. And a funny thing happens when managers you know, move from talent hoarder to moving talent around, they become a talent magnet you know, suddenly everybody wants to go work for the gal or the guy that gets people promoted, right? That invests in their career, that invests in them. And you only can invest in people and spend that amount of energy and time if you truly love them, if you truly care about them, right? And so I think that's a, you know, a really good indication of, you know, having love is, are you investing in the advancement of your people?
1: I love it. And that's so good for talent acquisition, because now, those happy employees become brand ambassadors for you, makes the recruiting process much easier because now people want to work for you. That's love. I love that, Kevin. Thanks for sharing that. So before we close out, let's fill any holes we've missed. I mean, is there any question that I should have asked that I didn't?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I, you know, I think as we look at those 18 steps, and I realize that can be kind of daunting, but there's so many great examples and practical examples in the book around those 18 steps to renovate your culture. One key component that I bring out early in the book is the, you know, this notion of finding those culture ambassadors inside the organization. You know, those people that we talked about earlier, those are the people that are going to be so critical to making sure your culture change happens. And while culture change rarely happens if it's not leader led meaning it's really hard to change a company's culture if the ceo doesn't want to or if the you know senior team doesn't want to but if they want to they need to get the co-creation of the workforce involved and get those culture ambassadors that we talked about early involved you know those are some key components that you see in some of the case studies that are in the book we end the of the 18 steps and they're, they're divided up into three phases. The last phase is maintain. And so we end those steps with a number of different talent activities that organizations can do to make sure that all the effort that you put into changing culture sticks and that you don't you know, just kind of slowly drift back to the way things used to be. And some of that's around onboarding. Companies are really changing the way they onboard employees today. It's not a Two hour, here's your badge, and that's where the bathrooms are kind of onboarding. This is about establishing relationships, particularly with subject matter experts that are going to help you in your career at the organization. That goes a long way to making sure that people are successful in the company. We also talk about performance management, and a lot of companies will change the way they review performance inside the organization to reinforce the culture change uh, that they want to see. That's a big area as well hopefully, you know, if anybody's looking at, you know, culture change overall, hopefully these 18 steps will, you know, be that blueprint or sort of that, you know, that guide that organizations can use to systematically go about changing culture and make sure it sticks.
1: Kevin, we bring it home with two final questions. And, you know, our listeners look forward to this. They know it's coming. And the first question is a chance for you to just kind of get real with our audience and that is personal what's really tugging at your heart right now that you would like us to know
0: oh it's been very disconcerting to see how divided we've been as a society over the last several years certainly not united states right it's uh, you know it's been very divided and so that's been tugging at me and i think you know organizations feel that same tug for sure And I guess the other thing that's tugging at me, Marcel, is I got to make sure I live up to everything I'm preaching today (laughs) to you and to the audience. You know, make sure my employees are holding me accountable to all the things that I say because I don't do everything that I uh, profess, you know, that leaders should do. And I, you know, it's a constant battle. You always got to make sure that you're, you know, following the words that you say.
1: Yeah, that is so true. And a reminder for all of us leaders because we, put ourselves in such a, a role of high esteem that sometimes the, the bar is so high Kevin, to measure up to true leadership that it can be daunting but yeah thanks for that reminder we have to constantly be the example for others. Okay, you uh, get to close us out with that one final takeaway, that one thing that you'd like to end this with.
0: Well, I said it earlier, but it's really taking the time to listen. I'm astounded how many people interrupt each other. (laughs) And when you see interruptions happening, that's because people are not listening to understand, they're listening to reply. You know, I'm guilty of it as well. We're all guilty of of interruptions at times. But I would, uh, you know, I think as we talk about that division that I just said, if we take the time to understand each other, a lot of that divisiveness goes away. And so... You know, my one last piece
1: of advice is take the time to listen. Hey, it's been fun. It's been real and engaging conversation. Uh, I learned a lot. I know my listeners did too. I appreciate you coming on today. Thanks, Marcel. It was fun. Yeah. If people want to connect with you, Kevin, and learn more about your business, your services, where can they go?
0: We have a whole website set up to support the book. It's called culturerenovation.com, just like the title of the book. And there's not only information on the book out there, but there's also some tools that organizations can take a look at that will help in their culture change efforts. There's case studies that aren't in the book. And then we recognize that there's also techniques that organizations use to change their culture that we didn't have in the book. because, And we know that because we couldn't fit them in the book. And so we invite companies to share their own stories and their own techniques on the website as well. So check out culturerenovation.com if you're interested in this subject.
1: I'll make sure that that's also in our show notes on my website, marcelschwantes.com. So check that out. Stick around. I'm going to extend the conversation with my three action steps, three things that I will personally recommend you start doing today based on this conversation and on Kevin's book that's coming up next. Hey, hope you enjoyed that conversation. Here are your three action items for today's episode. Try these and let me know whether they're making a change in how you lead or work. Now, these are intended for culture change or developing your company culture. So, action item number one is you got to identify what your culture is or what you want it to become. In Kevin's research, he identified 10 types of cultures as the most common. And you'll find that in his book, he lists them all. Interestingly enough, most companies have multiple types of cultures. So if you've identified your culture to be, say, a collaborative culture, well, your next action item is now to define the new behaviors that all leaders from senior executives to middle managers to frontline managers will need to exhibit as well as avoid in order to support the culture. So, for example, for a collaborative culture, the leader traits you want are that of a facilitator, more of a coach type of leader, and also of a transparent leader. And then your last action item is to reinforce the behaviors. So, these behaviors have to be clearly and constantly communicated, modeled, and embodied by the CEO and the senior leadership team. And then these behaviors are measured and rewarded. And of course, they're going to have to be now part of the company's performance management process. So there you have it, your three action items. My special thanks to Kevin Oaks for joining us and giving us such great wisdom. If you'd like to join the conversation and comment on this episode, hashtag love in action podcast. We'll get you there. And I'll be posting this episode on Twitter at Marcel Schwantes. And you can find it also on LinkedIn, Marcel Schwantes. Follow the discussion there. Finally, if you or your company would like to sponsor episodes of the Love in Action podcast, I would love to chat with you. Find me on my website, marcelschwantes.com or on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Doing so We'll help more people to find the podcast so we can keep spreading the love in action movement until next time. Don't forget the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it and be convinced.